going to ask you if you would stand with me one more time, please. We're going to read our text from the book of Micah. We are in number three in a new series based on Andy Stanley's book called The Principle of the Path. And let me just say this to you. If, if you have... Uh, incorrectly thought that, hey, I don't really need to get in a group, that I'm getting at all whatever Pastor Michael's preaching on Sunday morning. I'm doing supplemental stuff that's not in the book, and this is so intensely practical, it's still not too late to get involved in one of our life groups somewhere. Uh, and it's, you know, church is not just about being in a, in a celebration once a week, but it's about doing life on a smaller scale too. It's the big and the little. And so we really want to encourage you to be involved in one of our life groups Meet various locations in both West Memphis and Marion, mornings and evenings, different weeknights. Uh, if you would find a screen with me, please, as we jump in today to number three. Our text is found in the book of Micah, Micah chapter 4 and verse 2. And as that's pulled up this morning, let's read together. Here we go. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. The last part of this verse is critical because it refers to Jesus coming into Jerusalem and the law has basically changed. It's a new commandment. Remember he told his disciples that he's giving and it's the law of love, which is basically the gospel. Okay, so here we go. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Let's pray right now. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time together and this service this morning. I just uh, am desperate for you. Lord, I need you. I ask you today to speak through, Lord, my lips. I submit them to you. Let the voice within the voice be heard by the ear and the heart of every person in this place. For the gospel call that goes forth to see the kingdom of God established and for us to flow up to it, to be taught your ways and learn to walk in your paths. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. I'm careful to give you all the praise. It is all your glory and honor. Do what only you can do in this place, Holy Spirit. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. you may be seated this morning. This is number three. Uh, it's called Choices Have Consequences. And um, the series text that we've been doing is from Micah. Micah chapter 4, verse 2 Verses 1 and 2 are identical to Isaiah chapter 2. Uh, those two guys were contemporaries. They prophesied at the same time. Isaiah was a relative of Uzziah. Uh, he had royalty uh, because of being related to the king at the time. Micah was prophesying out in the countryside, had a little bit different audience, maybe a little bit of a rural church. Uh, Isaiah was in the court of the king. But both of them were definitely hearing the strain uh, of the spirit the sound of what the word of the Lord that was being declared in that day. And that was that out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Notice it doesn't say Sinai. Sinai is the law of the old covenant. Uh, and we recognize that being covenantal, that both the law and the gospel is in both the natural covenant of the old and the spiritual fulfillment of the new. And they are two critical elements. The law breaks us, makes us aware of how desperate we are in need of God, how bankrupt I am apart from Christ, and when I'm in that place of recognition of my need, then I am most ready and available for the unsearchable riches of Christ and the kingdom of God. Jesus said in the first beatitude in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So being ha having uh, access to and being available to be able to access all of the riches in glory by Christ Jesus have everything to do or has everything to do 
with our personal attitudes. As long as we don't think we need God, He's not going to show up and inundate us with His abundance and His blessing. But no matter how much we have naturally, no matter how blessed and abundant and overflowing we are, if we can maintain a brokenness before God and a recognition that all of that is nothing, and that if I have Him and even none of that, I have everything... Because with him comes everything. He who spared not his own son, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things, is what the writer of Romans chapter 8 says. And so we must recognize that it's all tied to him. Jesus plus nothing equals everything, as one of the, the, the current generation, Tulian Chavidjan, grandson of, of the great Dr. Billy Graham, pastor's Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, speaking to a lot of these issues on the finished work of Christ these days and on what the gospel is. And I'm thrilled to be able to uh, draw your attention to, to that ministry this morning. As we jump in, this is uh, a book that Andy Stanley wrote. Some of you might be familiar with Dr. Charles Stanley, First Baptist Atlanta, for years. We've taken um, our team every year, except this year. We didn't make the trek to Atlanta in the month of October to the Catalyst Conference, and we're normally very refreshed and strengthened by that. And Andy is a tremendous communicator, a great writer, uh, and if your life is so busy that you can't get involved in one of these life groups, then we understand. But the, I just want to recommend this book to you because it really has the potential to change your life. I've been preparing this for about three years. It's been stewing on the back burner of my spirit. So this morning as we jump in, we've already spoken to the question, where are you headed? And we took a trek through the wilderness and we talked about circularity. Secondly, last week we talked about the great disconnect it's very obvious when we talk about the geographical metaphor in that you can't get to Nashville by going north on I-55. Its direction is going to determine your destination. No matter how much you intend to end up in Nashville, you're going to end up in St. Louis and probably further north if you keep driving that way because the paths determine the destination. And So that's the principle of the path as we're learning in every one of these chapters and every one of these messages, direction, not intention, determines destination. And so the decisions that we're making on a daily journey in our lives are like landmarks or they're like mile markers on the path of a highway that we're walking on. And so in, just in the interest of, of, of review, and then I'll be finished with my review and we'll jump in, I want you to say this after me. Direction, not intention, determines my destination. Now let's say it all together now. Direction, not intention, determines my destination. So as we jump in this morning, there is a message text, just one verse that really relates to today. Today's message is called Choices Have Consequences. And this one is found in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 12. And we're getting it from the NIV. Read out loud with me, please. The prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and pay the penalty. Let's read it out loud together one more time. The prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and suffer for it. Now, we see two kinds of people here in this very simple scripture, and that's a very standard means of presenting a truth in the book of Proverbs. Many times you will see an antithesis, opposites set against one another, Sometimes you will see parallels where it will be basically repeating the same lesson and saying it in a different kind of way. This is the obvious antithesis in terms of teaching wisdom principles, okay? 
So he says, the prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and suffer for it. So there are two different kinds of people in facing the life circumstances, in, uh, in the paths that are chosen, in seeing what is ahead of you. And this is the challenge, is that so many times, last week's message talked about the, the great disconnect how it's obvious to see the metaphor geographically, but somehow we manage to personally isolate single decisions in our lives and then really think that they don't have any real consequence uh, in the long term. Uh, we make a choice to live a certain way, and, and, and really live implies that we're doing that decision on a regular basis. But sometimes just one-time decisions, we think that they're really not going to impact our lives, but sometimes one-time decisions can completely alter the course of a person's life, depending on whether or not you're able to see the danger that could be involved in it. The prudent are able to look out ahead and see, if I make this choice, that's the consequence out ahead of me that I will reap. The simple don't see it, whereas the prudent see it and take refuge because of the danger that they know that is ahead. They're able to, even though the future has not arrived into the present yet, they see I can't do this and not reap some significant consequences because every choice has a consequence. Physics teaches us that for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. That's a universal law uh, you, you cannot override that. You, you, you don't have the ability to have enough faith to stop the law of gravity. We can go over here, as I've said a couple of times through the years, and admire the beautiful West Memphis skyscraper, the what used to be called the Mid-Continent Building. Now it's the Garrity Loan Building, six beautiful floors of, of what looks like a, a, a dog box that somebody has cut holes in to keep your puppy in. Uh, and, and you go to the top of it, and you stand on the top of it, and you jump off of it. Um, we will probably be eulogizing you. Uh, if you do happen to live, it'll be, it'll be rough because the law of gravity kicks in. Even if you don't know about the law of gravity, even if you're ignorant of the law of gravity, it will still take its effect in your life. And actually, you don't break that law. That law breaks you. It breaks me. Same thing with the law of God. It's not a matter of me breaking a commandment. If I live against that law, it's going to break me. Somebody say amen. So the prudent see the danger and they take refuge. They change their course. They make a course correction. They decide, I have to turn. I can't keep uh, heading in this direction because it's going, to, it's going to yield something that will not be positive in my life. Now this is very obvious in the wisdom and the gospel application of this is that Jesus said there are two paths, two gates, two ways. Uh, narrow is the gate, literally, Straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life and few there be that find it. Broad is the gate, wide is the way that leads to destruction and many there be, the scripture says. King James grew up on it. Many there be that, that walk in that path and they end up in destruction. Proverbs 14, 12 and 16, 25 both say the same thing. There is a way that seems right to man but the end leads to death. And so we can be on a path thinking that we're headed in the right direction. It's a good career decision. Maybe it's a little bit unethical, it's a gray area, and we think, well, it really won't make any difference. The prudent sees the danger in that and changes course. The simple just basically keep going and they suffer for it. Listen, listen to the other translation here, the New Living Translation. The NLT says, a prudent person foresees danger and takes precautions. The simpleton goes blindly on and suffers the consequences. Everybody say Consequences. 
That's the title of the message this morning, Choices Have Consequences. And I have three principles that I want to give you very quickly. Number one, this one is the idea that failure is never a one-step deal. Say that, that out loud with me, please. Failure is never a one-step deal. I want to tell you a little bit about the story of the man who is likened to and is referred to as the greatest type that is a prophetic picture of Christ in the Old Testament. And it is the great king of Israel. How many of you know who I'm talking about? David. Everybody say David. Okay. We know that Saul was the first king of Israel. And then after he died, his son Ishbosheth became king shortly. And then the king that God had anointed to take the place was David. And David reigned for 40 years. And it was a tremendous time in terms of the blessing of God for the nation of Israel. And David is a picture. He's a prophetic picture. We use the word type, Greek word tupos. It's a prophetic picture pointing to something that is going to be fulfilled. We, we talk about an Old Testament shadow and a New Testament substance, an Old Testament type and a New Testament truth, something that points to the reality and then the fulfillment of that reality. Jesus Christ is the antitype, okay, to David. He is the fulfillment of that. He is what David was pointing to and that we all long to see. Uh, uh, Yeshua HaMashiach, the, the Savior, the Lord, the Anointed One, the Christ. Okay? Now, David is very human. And anytime we look at the Old Testament and we see a type, it's going to be an imperfect one because no individual who is born of woman who is born in sin, can ever fully give us a perfect representation. Moses couldn't do it. Abraham couldn't do it. Sarah couldn't do it. Uh, Rahab the harlot certainly couldn't do it. But she gave us a picture of believing faith when she was regenerated and transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Every one of these are, are, are pictures, prophetic pictures. And David gives us literally this, this most amazing prophetic type of Jesus Christ who is to come. And he has a life that is just like yours and mine. The Bible says in the book of Acts that he was a man after God's own heart. Now, I believe that that means that he was pursuing God's heart, but I believe that means that God's heart was literally turned to David in such a way because there was a covenantal bond. David had an understanding of the grace of God and got away with stuff, stuff that nobody else in the old covenant ever got away with. Now, think about this. There was a guy... Uh, by the name of Perez, who merely tried to reach and steady the ark when it was in travel and the, the cart jostled a little bit and he touched the ark and God struck him dead on the spot. But David, who was hungry with his men one day, went in on the Sabbath and took the showbread and fed it to his warrior men. And God said, hey, this guy's got an understanding of grace these others don't have. He, he restored the ark of the Lord to Jerusalem. Everything is going over on over here in Shiloh in the way of very prim and proper and upstanding religious activities and they've got all the programs and they have the buildings and the bricks and mortar and everything looks great in the tabernacle except there is no presence of God. All the furniture is there except the ark and that, that ark literally is the representation of the presence of God in the earth. So David goes and captures the ark and brings it back to Jerusalem, but he does not put it in the tabernacle in Shiloh. He sets it up in an open tent. It tells us about this in both Kings and in Samuel and in Chronicles. 
And it's referred to in the book of Amos, prophesying about the new covenant age. And James stand up, stands up in Acts 15, verses 16 and 17. He says, in the latter days, I will raise up the tabernacle of David and it will literally be that which God uses to bring the residue of men to claim a people for His name, a people for God's name. Literally, that we're a people of His presence. And so God uses David to set up the tabernacle out there in Jerusalem on the hill of Zion and everybody's invited to come. Now, if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you remember what happens when somebody goes in and looks at the ark and it, I want to, I want to hear you say it together, melts their face off. <laughs> there are not many messages I get a chance to use that phrase. But if you saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, you remember what happened. Well, David's got a grace working on him because he doesn't even have a formal priesthood out here. He's inviting women and children and they're sitting around the ark literally in eight-hour shifts, 24 hours a day, giving God praise. Some of you have never heard of this. It's in parts of the Bible maybe that you've not read yet. And so there's all of this interest in the presence of God and, and the, the, uh, the prophet Amos says there'll come a time in the New Testament when that will literally be what will be the whole means of how this thing works. There'll be complete open access. Neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free, slave or free, that's not an issue. Male or female, white or black, rich or poor, educated, uneducated, all of those differentiators cease to be in terms of the access and the availability of the presence of God in the new covenant of age. And that's where we are right now. Now this same guy that you see this has this tremendous favor of God on his life comes to a moment where it seems that just all of that nearly has gone out. And I believe that maybe the story that you're about to read here with me just for the next few moments might be able to speak to some folks here in this room because we've been there. We've been in places like we're about to read about David. Listen to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read it from the message. It says it this way. When that time of year came around again, the anniversary of the Ammonite aggression, David dispatched Joab and his fighting men of Israel in full force to destroy the Ammonites for good. They laid siege to Rabbah, but David stayed in Jerusalem. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, David stayed home. Now, the other translation, the King James says, the time came around when kings go out to battle. This is typically, in the Hebrew mind, the springtime. Now, springtime comes, trees start to bud and leaf out, flowers are blooming, sap's rising in the trees. It is the time of love among people who are in search for it. It's just this whole spring fling kind of thing that people really are always drawn into. The sun is shining, there are no clouds in the sky, it's not raining. It is just this very exhilarating sort of season. Most kings go out to war. David made his first mistake because he stayed home. David stayed in Jerusalem. One late afternoon, David got up from taking his nap and was strolling on the roof of the palace. From his vantage point on the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Everybody say he saw. The woman was stunningly beautiful. David sent to ask about her. Everybody say David sent. And he was told, Isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent. Everybody say David sent. David sent his agents to get her after she arrived. Everybody say she arrived. 
After she arrived, he went to bed with her. This occurred during the time of purification following her period. Then she returned home. Before long, she realized she was pregnant. Later, she sent word to David, I'm pregnant. Now, how does this happen? How does this happen to a man who loves God so intensely that the grace of the Lord would come on him and he would protect sheep and he would write psalms that literally people for thousands of years after him would stand together, would by themselves lift up the songs of Zion and they would stand in congregations and celebrate the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Or Psalm 48, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of His holiness. Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth. Is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king? Or how about thy loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise thee, O thou most high. You sit in your throne judging right. You turn back my enemies. And he's talking about all of these things that he's fighting in terms of the, the temptations and the trials and the, the sheep literally that he's rescued from the, from the paw of the bear and the mouth of the lion and the, the testimony of having been into battle himself and brought down the great giant called Goliath. What a testimony. And all that stuff happened before he became king. And he became king and God favored his leadership and blessed the nation and, and, and it was just the most amazing reign. He, he wasn't allowed to build the temple for God but he was allowed to amass all this wealth in order to get ready for his son Solomon to be able to do it. And Solomon is another one of those amazing types of Christ. Solomon means prince of peace in his own name. And it's, it's the period of the greatest economic wealth and prosperity and influence of the nation. And yet we see these two men are incredibly human. And this story with David here is about the fact that failure is never a one-step deal. You guys are facing stuff this morning. You guys are facing stuff at work. You're facing issues in relationships. You're facing stuff ethically. You're facing things potentially in terms of any kind of direction that you go down a path. And you need to realize that choices always have consequences. And when you make those choices, it's never... The fruit that comes is never a one-step deal. You don't just get up and decide, today I'm going to have a moral failure. We, we see the stories. We hear about the difficulties of, of, of great pastors and men and women of God of local churches and businessmen. I mean, but let me just say it right now without being political. There is so much corruption going on in Crittenden County right now. It's frightening. It, it, it's, in, it's in city councils. It's in... Uh, it's in our tax office. Uh, it's, it's, it's documents have been shredded. It's people that are supposed to be, have already been paid and they're not showing up for their quorum court for their justice of the peace meetings on the county board. And all of these issues, it just seems like right now if you pick up the paper or you read anything that's going on in Crittenden County, it is outrageous the, the amount of corruption that is being exposed right now in this county. And it's so unfortunate because some of those people went into those offices and took on that level of authority. And it's amazing sometimes when you give a man a title how much his heart changes. Amen. Happens in church the same way. And you get a chance to really see what's in the heart. Because sometimes they get way too big for the britches. And the issue is, is that those choices that are made, there are consequences. There's a little bitty principle right down here. It says wisdom is knowing the right path to take. Integrity is taking it. Prudence see danger 
and they, 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 make, they, they make course corrections. They take refuge. They, they take precautions, as the NLT says. But the simple or the simpleton basically just keep on blaring right through. It's basically pedal to the metal, as the old truckers say, and it's just, just hammer down all the way, going all the way, going to drive right on through this thing. And guess what? They just drive their truck right into hell. There's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Failure is never a one-step deal. He stayed home when all the other kings were going out to war. Idleness. Forgive me, it's a cliche, but it's so true. Idleness is the devil's workshop. Idle hands. Too many times we get bored with where we are and we're not feeling this sense of conquest or adventure in our ministry, in our life, in our relationships, in our marriages, raising our children, in our jobs, and we're on this thing and really are sort of become indifferent about it and we start looking elsewhere to find a sense of fulfillment. And Augustine said it this way, Thou hast made us in your image and we only find fulfillment when we find our rest in you. We've said it this way for years, sort of modified it. God has built a, a, a God-shaped vacuum on the inside of you that can only be satisfied when it's filled with God Himself. And we try as men, as, as women, as humans to fill it with everything except God. With addictive patterns of behavior, with immorality, with impropriety, with all of these different kinds of things. And David stayed home when he should have been out doing what he was supposed to do. Now, it's a totally separate message but the other end of the spectrum is not idle. The other end of the spectrum, idleness uh, from idleness, is also a huge factor in bringing people into a place of temptation and sin. And that is, you're so busy and under so much pressure that you get in a place where you don't know, you no longer respond, and you pull away, and you start becoming critical. And those are issues. That's a different set of messages and circumstances that are faced. But it's on that same spectrum. One in is idleness and staying home and not doing what you're supposed to. The other one is being so busy that you're not staying connected to the Lord or to the people of God or to your original vision or to your intention and following through. And each of those extremes provide opportunities for people to be drawn into offense on one side and temptation on the other. Don't shout me down this morning. I know I'm, I'm teaching real good. Somebody say amen. amen. So as we look at this, he stayed home. He sent and inquired. He walks out, first of all. The next step in the process is he's on the vantage point of the roof. What are you using your vantage point of leadership for? What are you out looking for? David's out roaming. He's taking an afternoon nap. He walks out there. It's the springtime. It's obviously pretty warm. Or Bathsheba wouldn't have been taking a bath on the roof of wherever she was living. And most guys say, well, she ought not been out there bathing on the top of that roof in the first place. <laughs> well... Um, I just I don't want even be tempted to be drawn into that. I'll just move on. Uh, a king saw. Now let me just say this: there was still not sin at that point. He saw. You can see something, and in that moment you make a choice as to whether or not you're going to pursue beyond just the seeing. Are you hearing me? He saw a woman who was stunningly beautiful, and obviously the the, the vision. Wasn't He didn't deter. He didn't turn away. He didn't say, no, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go down that path or that trail. He, con he continued to veer, to look upon in a kind of voyeuristic sort of way. And he's obviously making a decision in this, this time. He sends his messengers to inquire about who the woman is. And they come back with what should have been a warning. 
It should have been a red flag already all over the place because they respond to him and say, isn't this literally the, 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 whole, the whole brother of Uriah the Hittite, the Eliam, this, this is his wife, this is Uriah the Hittite's wife? And they ask the question in such a way as if to say, King, you don't want to do that. Isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite? And that doesn't stop him. There's a red flag. There's basically this danger sign. Red, 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 red flaring. And the prudent who see danger and take precautions uh, is not what's on David's mind. He is definitely just shutting off all the dummy lights on his dashboard of his life. And he's driving straight through ahead. And the, the Bible says the next step that he took, he sent his agents to get her. Now... He's the king. He is operating under divine right and he is operating under absolute authority in this day only to be checked by the law of God. And David has already checked that at the door. He knows better than what he's about to do, but he keeps drawing, being drawn and lured down this path and there are landmarks along the way. There are milestones as he keeps driving he stays home when he should have been at war. He's walking around on his roof. He sees a woman. The seeing becomes lust. He sends his agents for her. They come back and bring word and say, Isn't this Bathsheba? This is your soldier, your faithful soldier, Uriah the Hittite's wife. And he still doesn't care. He sent his agents to get her after she arrived. Now there's still a moment now, even though he's already decided what he's going to do when she comes in, when he could have responded to the convicting presence of the Holy Spirit and said, No, I'm not going to do this. But he still ignores every warning sign, every, every signal that is in front of him, and he heads in that direction anyway. And it says, after she arrived, he went to bed with her. And I'll skip through. Before long, she realized she was pregnant. Later, she sent word to David, I'm pregnant. You know the story. Nathan the prophet comes and weaves this story about a man who has a whole herd of sheep and one man who has one little sheep. And this unfaithful king sends for the man's one sheep and takes it. And David arises in anger and fury and he said, That man should die. And Nathan looks at him with a prophetic finger and he said, Thou art the man. David breaks in true repentance before God and he writes Psalm 51. And if any of you are interested and you're in a place this morning where you need to know how to pray when you have gotten far from God in your walk and in your life, it's Psalm 51 where David talks about the forgiveness of God and create in me a clean heart, a pure heart, a right heart with you, O God. And don't take your Holy Spirit from me and, and lift me up and sustain me. And God, give me that which is integrity in the inward parts of my life. And he prays that prayer out of integrity and honesty and he's broken before God and God brings forgiveness. But there are still consequences. Brings me to point number two. These last two will be very quick. Number two, forgiveness does not override the law of sowing and reaping. This is where we have lost understanding of this in the Bible Belt South with the gospel light that we're getting in so many places. That is that He's Savior and there's no ever any understanding of preaching that He is Lord. We cannot override the law of sowing and reaping. You plant a seed, you're going to bear crop. Listen to the word of the Lord this morning in the message, Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Don't be misled. No one makes a fool of God. 
What a person plants, he will harvest. The person who plants selfishness, ignoring the needs of others, ignoring God, harvests a crop of weeds. All he'll have to show for his life is weeds. But the one who plants in response to God, letting God's Spirit do the growth work in him, harvests a crop of real life, eternal life. Now, David got forgiveness, but that doesn't undo the pregnancy. Hear me this morning. This is not just for teenagers. This message is for all of us because we still, we, you, you never outgrow temptation. Now let me be careful to tell you this. It's not a sin to be tempted because Jesus was tempted. He was tempted in all points like you are, like we are, like I am, yet without sin. The temptation is not the sin. It's what I choose to do with the temptation is where sin enters. And this is the critical thing that we must understand this morning and that is that you are free to make whatever choice you want. Everybody say, I'm free to choose. Come on, we believe in that. We understand that. You're free to make whatever choice you want, but you are not free from the consequences of the choice. Choices have consequences. Bathsheba got pregnant. The baby died. David begged God, fasted and prayed. And you know what? For the rest of the whole family tree that you read about in David, and I think I'm going to preach an extended series on the life of David next year. I've been praying about that for some, for some time. David's life is fascinating because he's, he has the heart of God and his heart is toward God, but yet he makes some decisions that are really awful. And he reaps a crop of incredible dysfunctionality in his family. One of his sons, Amnon, lusts after his half-sister and rapes Tamar. Tamar is Absalom's own sister. Absalom waits two years and plots and he kills Amnon. Absalom has to go into hiding and run into refuge. And so David now has lost one son at a death because it was revenge. And then he's lost another one who has out there in the wilderness hiding from him. And he actually finally comes back to the city and he gets restored to fellowship with David. But he sits out there at the gate of the city and he gets the Absalom spirit on him. We talk about that as leaders. And he basically tells everybody, if I were the king, if I were the pastor, if I were the leader, if I owned this company, this is how I would run it. And it's all incredibly undermining. And he actually tries to take over the throne. Adonijah sets himself up as king. So we've got three of David's boys that are just screwed up. Pardon my plainness. They are messed up beyond description. The Bible said David never did correct his sons. You cannot be a faithful father of a natural family. I cannot be a faithful spiritual father and not speak to issues that are desperately crying out for adjustment, for the justice and the judgment of God. Judgment not meaning punishment. Judgment meaning setting things right. Sometimes there's an experience of feeling the harsh pain of a little bit of discipline in those moments. And yet there is no undoing the law of sowing and reaping. Final thing, and I'm finished this morning, point three. God's faithfulness is greater than your failure. Hear that today, please. If you're on a path and you've made bad choices and you're reaping the crop of some bad choices, God's faithfulness is greater than your failure. He can take your failures and actually turn it and work it together for your good. But you have to have a heart that's been completely, totally surrendered to Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life. Somebody say amen. amen. This is what ministered to me this week. I sat down. 
I've been blessed here in the last couple of months with a, with a museum piece, a German Hogspiel grand piano. Not a baby grand, it's a grand piano. It's sitting in my den from a lady in Memphis who had retired as an interior decorator. Beautiful, beautiful instrument, and I let it set for a few weeks, and I brought an Ambro, and they've tuned it twice and done some restoration work on it. And last Saturday, I sat down, and Dawn was, was lying on the couch out in the sunroom, and the piano was right there against those windows, and I sat down and played an old song. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. And this thing has just been cooking in my spirit all week long. Listen to what's going on here in the brokenness of Jeremiah who writes this lament, this lamentation. He says, My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and it's bowed down within me. But listen to this. This is where the turn takes place. A change takes place because somebody makes a choice and decides to quit looking at how awful bad it is and the failure. And they turn and the Bible says, but this I call to mind. So he's making a choice about what he's going to think about. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in Him. See, sometimes when you're facing a situation and it overwhelms you and it seems like everything around you, doubts and fears, assail you, to put it in King James poetic terms, and you feel like you're going to be washed over by the waves of destruction. And it's in that moment where you have to make the choice and say, in the middle of all of this destruction, I determine I'm going to call this to mind. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are everlasting to everlasting. His faithfulness is great. And I want to tell you, if you're sitting here this morning in brokenness, God's faithfulness is greater than your failure. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. See, I want you to hear this morning as I close this message, grace is not just about forgiveness. Unfortunately, that's the anorexic version of it in the Bible Belt South. So many people, if you were to ask about grace, they would just think of forgiveness of sins. And, and, I, and, and I'm, like, I'm like Inigo Montoya in The Princess Bride. And he says, you keep using that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means. I think there are a whole host of Bible words that we use all the time and we have no clue what they really mean. I think grace is one of them. Grace is so much more than just being about forgiveness. Grace is God doing for and in and through you what you cannot do yourself. It is not... 
It is not only unearned, unmerited favor, but it is the operational power of God in your life so that you can do what you have been called to do, even if you've failed. Thank God for forgiveness. That's the first step. That's, the, that's when the door opens. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But let's not... Let's not be anorexic in our faith and let's raise up people that are caught in the trap of just going to and asking God over and over and over and over and over for the same sin for forgiveness and they're living a life of circular behavior where they're going around the mountain over and over and over again because Jesus didn't just die to forgive you. He died to deliver you. He died to deliver you from that power of sin. That's the gospel right there. That's what we wrestle with. Everybody on the preaching team here at Victory, Haley and Jeremy and Alex and myself and everybody who preaches with all of their hearts preaches from this understanding of the greatness of gospel and a God whose faithfulness is bigger than my or your failure.